everyone. I'm so glad to see you today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. If you've been a part of any week of this series, it's my hope that uh, you have been asking yourself this question. And the question is, what is the story I'm telling myself about myself? And however it is that you answer that question, that's how you see your own identity. And our identity, it is a, they're complex, they're tricky things. Right? And there's a lot of things that are true about you and true about me, and how do we understand that? I've just, because this subject is so critical and so complex, I've found it helpful over the years to think about identity kind of like a deck of cards. And each facet of you, each fact about you, each fact about me, that's, it's like a, each thing is like its own card in the deck. And how you shuffle yours and how our shuffle mine might be a little bit different and how you value certain cards might be different than how I value certain cards. And certainly not every card that makes up who we are is, is the same. You know, and what, are, what would some of the cards in your deck be? In mine, I would find cards like this. Uh, husband, uh, dad, pastor, uh, golfer, Saints fan, all kinds of... Any Saints fans out there? No. I'm praying for you guys. Praying for you. It's miserable to be a Saints fan right now. But if I'm super honest with you, if I'm really honest, I got some cards in here I'm not a huge fan of. Like I've got a card that if I, it, it would say quick to speak and slow to listen. Try to keep that, you know, down at the bottom of the deck. Try not to play that one too much. But when it comes to thinking about our identity, my question for you is, what's your top card? What's the one that's on the top? And when we talk about the one that's on the top, we're talking about the one that's the thing about you. There's the thing about you that says, this is what makes my life worth living. This is what gives me value. This is what gives me purpose, what makes me really safe. This is what gives my life fulfillment. And we talk about those concepts. We use three words, significance, security, and satisfaction. What's your top card? And if your top card is anything that defines you based on what you do and what you are able to accomplish, let me just tell you, you're going to battle, you're going to str- wrestle with feelings of insignificance, insecurity, and dissatisfaction. At the end of the message, I'm going to ask you, what is it that truly defines you? But before we get there, I want to ask you a different question. This is where we're going to start. What do you do and what are you like? What do you do and what are you like whenever you feel insignificant, insecure, and dissatisfied? Whenever you're feeling one or a combination of these, is that the version of you that people want to go on a vacation with? Whenever I'm feeling one or a combination of these, come on, I'm curious if anybody else can relate to this, I become a version of myself that I don't even like. And I think the men and women who Peter was writing to in this letter, I think they were men and women who totally understood this. And scholars who've studied uh, the, the letter of 1 Peter, they tell us when Peter started out the letter and he said, listen, those of you who are exiles, he might have meant that metaphorically, but he didn't only mean that metaphorically. The people he was writing to, they were literally exiles. And to understand that, we have to understand a little bit about how the Roman government worked. The Roman government would sometimes forcibly transplant their citizens from one city or region to another. 
And the reason that they would do that, well, there's actually two reasons why they might do that. One is, if there's a city or region over here and they want to speed up the process of this new area in the Roman Empire, they want to speed up the process of assimilation, of people becoming more assimilated into Roman culture, customs, and government, the fastest way to do that is to take citizens and populate that area with people who already embodied everything Rome. Another reason the government might do that is to break up a cluster of dissidents and spread them out so maybe they would lose influence. And dissidents aren't necessarily criminals. Imagine that there's an upstart new religion and the followers are saying that the leader of their religion is Lord over everything, including Lord over Caesar. That was the message of Christianity. Christians were viewed as dissidents. And so it's very likely that one or both of these reasons were at play and these followers of Jesus, these men and women, had been forcibly relocated to a distant city or region. And that means that the churches that Peter is writing to are full of men and women who are misunderstood and unwanted by their own government. They're misunderstood and unwanted by the communities that they find themselves in. So let me ask you, if that were us, wouldn't we be battling feelings of insecurity, feeling insignificant, feeling very dissatisfied in life? That is the context into which Peter wrote his letter. And this is why This is why it was so urgent for him to remind them, this is who you are in Christ. This is all that you have in Christ. This is why it was a top priority for Peter to remind them, to encourage them. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. As so many other things in life are shifting under your feet, this is the true grace of God. This is what you can stand on. This is what you can stand fast in. And this is what we need. And so as we turn the corner into into chapter 2 of of 1 Peter. We're continuing and understanding who we are in Christ and what it means to stand and the true grace of God. Chapter 2 starts like this, therefore, and uh, I know that I repeat myself a lot and I'm okay being a broken record. I just don't want to be annoying about it. But whenever we see a therefore, it should immediately trigger our thinking. After this is going to come a mindset or an attitude or behaviors that we should adopt. And everything that comes after the therefore is based on all the stuff that came before it. So what are the facts? What are the information that came before this? Well, a quick recap of chapter one. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You have the spirit of God in you. He's working in you to make you more like Jesus. And you have a hope that is alive. And you have this inheritance in Christ. It is shielded by God's power and nothing could ever take that away from you. And we're to be holy. We're to be, to be obedient to Christ. And that always means this. It means loving the way Jesus loved. It means loving and viewing love, letting Jesus define that and us living that out. And we have the word of God, which is an enduring treasure. And we remember who we are and all that we have in Christ. There's some things that we need to do. And that's why this has been our serious thesis. Let your identity drive your activity. We don't start with this. We always start with this. We remember who we are. And when we remember who we are, it gives clarity on what our lives should be like and what our lives should look like. So Peter says, therefore, based on all of that, rid yourselves of all. Okay, we got some work to do. 
We don't even need to know what comes next in this list. We just know it's probably going to be work, and it might be hard, and it might even be painful. It might be hard. It might be, it might be, it might be a little, little painful. So I want to remind us of something that we covered last week. If you're a note taker, write this down. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. We learned that from a man named Dallas Willard. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. So regardless, whatever comes next on this list of things we got to get rid of, working through that list, if we do it, it's not going to make Jesus like us more. Whatever's coming in this list, if we work through it, it's not going to give us a better standing with God. It's not going to give us more grace. Whatever's coming next in this list of things we got to get rid of, it is the logical outflow of remembering who we are in Jesus and living in a way that's consistent with our identity. So he says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. I'm curious, what jumps out at you from that sentence? The words that I find most interesting are of every kind. I think Peter's saying, listen, I don't have the time to write down all the ways that we could do this. I don't, have, I don't have the space in this letter to tease out all the different ways that these five different sins could express themselves in, in your life. He says, that's your responsibility. It's our responsibility to think clearly. It's our responsibility to intentionally think with wisdom and for us to examine ourselves for all the different ways that these sins could come spilling out of us. Do you ever do that? I want to say something real quick to... Those of you who are here and you're like, Rick, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm trying to figure out this Jesus thing. I'm trying to figure out you Christians. You don't have to do any of this. You are off the hook today. Like if you want to go get a refill on your coffee or a donut hole, you can do that right now. But if you want to just stick around and lean in, I think you're going to get some wisdom that will benefit you. I think you're going to discover that if you were to take this teaching, if you were to take the Bible seriously and try to apply it to your life, I think you're going to find it will make you better at life. But if you would say you are a follower of Jesus... If you would agree that, you know, I find joy in submitting to Jesus and submitting to his word, working through this list is not, it's not optional. It's not negotiable. These are things that we need to and we have to act on and work through and we will find joy in doing it. So what do we need to get rid of? We've got to get rid of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. This is how I want us to think about malice. It's any time we desire or delight in someone getting something less than what's in their best interest. Anytime we desire or delight in somebody getting less than what's in their best interest, and I know you're good people, you would never do that out loud, right? But when do you quietly delight in the misfortune of others? When do you quietly delight in that? I, the question is, what is gonna be our strategy to get rid of this of every kind? Deceit is whenever... We put energy or effort into allowing somebody to believe something that isn't true. And some of us, we're so good at it, we can deceive people without ever lying. I want to ask you, what are the conditions? What's the circumstances that would cause you to be most tempted to have a casual relationship with the truth? And what is the insecurity that's driving that? What's going to be our strategy to rid ourselves of deceit of every kind? Hypocrisy, which is similar to this, is any energy or effort we put into allowing somebody to believe something about us that isn't true. So let me ask you this. Is there anybody who you are allowing to believe something about you that's just not true? And why do you need them to see you that way? 
What's going to be our strategy to get rid of hypocrisy of every kind? Envy is resenting someone else for something good that they have because we want it. Now, who is the person, who are the people, and what is the thing that triggers envy in us? And what's going to be our strategy to get rid of envy of every kind? And this last one, slander, is using our words to try and cause someone else to feel insignificant or using our words to cause other people to see someone as less significant. And what is going on inside of us that when someone else makes a mistake or they see themselves as less significant or other people see them as less significant that it makes us feel superior? What's gonna be our strategy to get rid of slander of every kind? And if you're wondering, Rick, are you bad? <laughs> I wanna remind you, I love you. I love this church. It is a thrill to be your pastor. This is my only agenda today. It's just to teach the text. It's just to walk through honestly and to preach what the text has to say. There's nothing else behind it. But if there's anybody in here and you'd say, Rick, I kind of feel uncomfortable. I feel the discomfort of conviction. I think I do too. Let's remember. Let's remember who we are in Jesus and how safe and secure we are in him. And we can lean into this. And I also want to remind us of who Peter was writing to. He was writing to men and women and they were in situations that were difficult. They were being mistreated and they had no power, no prestige, and no privileges in their community and their society. And something that I think ties these things together is when you're stressed and when you're the object of mistreatment, these are kind of the go-to tactics. This is the go-to behavior when you don't have power or privilege or prestige to respond. So I want to ask a similar question to the one that I asked at the beginning, but it's a bit different. What do you do and what are you like? What do you do and what are you like when there's something in your life you don't like, when there's something going on in your world that you don't like, and you don't have the power or the privilege or the prestige to do anything about it? And those kinds of situations, isn't it true? This stops looking like a list of sins, and it becomes a pretty tempting strategy. John Tyson is a pastor and author who I've come to deeply respect. Um, I've had the chance to meet him and talk with him. Uh, he's the kind of guy that I think pastors and church leaders around our country should really listen to. And when he preached through this passage, I want you to hear the three ways that he described these five sins that Peter says we need to get rid of. He says self-protection, self-assertion, and self-centeredness are deeply ingrained mechanisms that destroy relationships. This is completely inappropriate for people brought into Jesus' kingdom. It is anti-Jesus. And when we're pressured, when we're stressed, when we're squeezed, these are the kinds of things that understandably naturally come, come out of us. And so I just want to ask, what are you like when you're squeezed? If you're a note-taker, would you write this down? Whenever we're squeezed, whatever comes out was already inside. And so when I remember that and I look at myself, it's a way to remember, man, the solution to the problems that I have, the solution that I need does not come by looking within. It comes by looking to Jesus. And the Jesus-like character and Jesus-like responses, they may not come naturally, and that's okay. They come supernaturally. And that's why in chapter one, Peter over and over again reinforced, you have the spirit of God inside of you, sanctifying you, growing you to be more like Jesus. So how do we participate in that? Peter says this, like newborn babies, 
What's this word? That was weak sauce. What's this word? Crave. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you can grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I'm curious, anybody play high school football? I played high school football. I was on the team. We'll say it that way. In the state of Florida, and I remember practices, 95 degrees, 90% humidity. Ugh, yuck. And I'm just old enough that I played in the era where coaches would not give you a water break as a test of your toughness. I remember going for a couple of hours, 95 degrees, 90% humidity, full pads. Have you ever been so dehydrated you fantasized about drinking water? Are there, listen, I love drinking anything but water. I will pay to not drink water. I will spend money at Starbucks. I will buy tea and frappuccinos and, and coffee and I like all sodas, all kinds of things. But in that moment, because of the severity of my circumstances, when the, when the water break finally came, it tasted so sweet. And you could not have tempted me with any other thing to drink because it was so harsh, the circumstances, I only wanted, I naturally only wanted what I knew would satisfy. I think you follow me. Why is it? Why is it that people sometimes don't crave pure spiritual milk? And I'm not talking about people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about those of us who do. Why do we not crave it? I think it's because maybe we're still infatuated with lesser things as though they would satisfy. To the degree that we're under the delusion that lesser things of this world will satisfy us, to that degree we're not going to crave pure spiritual milk. So the question is, well, what is that anyway? What is pure spiritual milk? I think Peter would say, well, it's this. It's anything and everything that communicates and celebrates the true grace of God. Anything and everything that communicates and celebrates the true grace of God. We have no other place to go to find out what the gospel is apart from God's word. That's where we gotta go to get it. But there are other things that remind us about it and there are other things that help us celebrate it. Maybe it's hearing the story of somebody else's life change, what God is doing for them. Maybe it's praying with other people. I'm finding this deep encouragement by hearing other people pray. And there are times when I'm, when I'm feeling insecure and I need to remember who I am. I have, a, I have a playlist on Spotify that I put on loop and I listen over and over again to remind me of the gospel and who I am in Christ. But ultimately, ultimately, craving pure spiritual milk is gonna drive us back to God's word that is pure spiritual milk. And if I could share with you a concern that I have too many people are trying to live off of spoiled milk. And I'm not just talking about people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about people who do. They're just sipping on spoiled milk. And I think people are craving something real and good. And if you look around, I mean, if you really pay attention, I think there are indicators that people are hungering and thirsting for something that's better than what they're getting. As I've been studying 1 Peter, I've been reminded of a show. I think I've talked to you guys about this show before. It makes me think about Ted Lasso. And if you're not familiar with the show, it's not my goal to try and get you to watch the show. And if you don't know anything about the show, you've got, it's a comedy. It's an American football coach who moves to London to coach a professional soccer team. And so their version of football is different from our football. So the comedy is very straightforward. But the essence of the show, I don't think, is comedy at all. He is out of place, which makes him a real kind of exile. People are hostile to him because they see him as a threat to the team and the sport that they love. 
And people with power and influence are trying to take advantage of him and exploit him. But he's a character of unrelenting kindness. And he's generous. And he always believes the best in other people, even when they don't believe any good about their own selves. And over time, his kindness transforms the people around him and transforms the environment around him and transforms the institutions that they are a part of. And this show has won all kinds of awards and the, the fans of the show are raving fans of the show and I think it's an indicator of this. People are thirsty for kindness. And as I watch the show, it reminds me of the kind of influence and impact that followers of Jesus should have that we should be like him. And we should bring kindness and love and gentleness to the people and the environments that we are in. And the difference, when we're squeezed, the difference between ugly stuff coming out of us and Jesus-like stuff coming out of us has everything to do with what we're putting in us, has everything to do with what we are craving. What do you crave? What are you looking to to satisfy you? What do you do to nourish that craving and to feed that craving? Peter continues. He says, as you come to Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. He's saying, listen, guys, I know you feel rejected because you are rejected. I know you feel insecure because people are threatening you. Look to Jesus. He is the chosen one of God. He is the precious one of God, and he was rejected too. And the reason we look to Jesus is because it's a reminder that we don't define ourselves and our worth by our circumstances. And we don't define God's love for us by our circumstances. Look to Jesus. And then again, he reminds them of their identity. He reminds us of our identity. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're like living stones. As I was studying, I came across an old story. I don't know if it's true or not or it's myth, but there was a king that went to visit the king of Sparta. And if you remember the old Spartan kingdom. They were known to be the fiercest warriors on the planet at that time. And this visiting king had heard about the legendary walls of defense around Sparta. And he showed up, and you know what he didn't find? He found no walls. And confused, he went to the Spartan king, and he said, where are the walls of Sparta that I heard about? And the Spartan king pointed to some of his soldiers and said, behold the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. Jesus is our king. And when we trust in him, he starts to make us into something new. And he is building us all together into something spectacular for his good purposes. And if I have any concerns, if I have any concerns about our focus on identity, it's that too many of us will only think about how that applies to us individually. And hyper-individualism is a product of modern Western culture. It is not the gospel. It is just as important to remember who we are collectively. Our community identity is just as important, if not more important. Yes, we are individually brand new in Jesus we are each individual like living stones, but he is building us into something together. And who we are collectively, who we are in community is just as important, maybe more important. He continues, he says, for, he says this, for in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, 
a, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. This is a promise about Jesus. Jesus is the cure for shame. Jesus is the antidote for shame. And when we know him, we have no need for self-protection and self-assertion anymore because he is the one who satisfies our need for significance, for security, for satisfaction and fulfillment and life. And so when we look to him, now to you who believe in him, this stone is precious, absolutely. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble. Are there people who stumble over Jesus, who, who, who reject him? Absolutely. Now Peter starts to go into something that causes some confusion for folks, and we're going to slow down and talk about it. He says, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Peter is using a metaphor of cornerstone, and a cornerstone was the most important part of the foundation, and it represents this. Jesus is the foundation of life, and he is the authority for life. And some people read this, and they think, okay, is Peter saying that God predetermined or destined that some people would reject Jesus, that God predetermined that some people would disbelieve in Jesus? Is that, what do you think? Is that the kind of thing that God would do? So we in order to be able to answer that question, we have to do something called hermeneutics. How many of you guys know what hermeneutics is? Does anyone know how to spell hermeneutics? Hermeneutics means this. It's the art and science of interpretation. So we're going to do a little hermeneutics 101 together. I'm going to give you four things to consider. There's more, but the author determines the meaning. The reader discovers it. We don't give meaning to the text. We discover the meaning of a text. We want to bombard the text with questions. It's part of being a good student. Context is supreme. We've got to read everything in context. And any time that there's a passage that is unclear to us, we're going to use very clear passages to interpret unclear passages. So let's do that together. Peter says, people are stumbling. We're going to ask the question, why do they stumble? What's the answer? They stumble because why? What do they do? They disobey the message. Because they disobey. Super easy. Isn't hermeneutics easy? Isn't it fun? Train's not all the way in the station. We still got a dilemma. Are some people, do they disobey because God predetermined that? This is right here. They were destined for. They stumble because they disobey, which is what they were destined for. So let's ask this question. Who was destined for what? Who was destined for what? We look back at the, so the they, the people who are disobeying, the people who are stumbling, either they were destined to stumble or they were destined to disobey. Those are the only two options we have. Anyone who disobeys is destined to stumble, or some people are destined to disobey, which then causes them to stumble. And there are smart people who say this and smart people who say yes. So how do we know which one is the better answer to go with? Well, we're going to do hermeneutics. And remember, we've said that the author determines the meaning, the reader discovers it. I'm going to give you guys a little quiz, see if you pass. I've said throughout this series, if you want to understand Peter, there's something you have to read and understand. Do you remember what it is? You have to read the Old, did you say Old Testament? Gold star. You got to read the Old Testament. All right, awesome. You got to read the Old Testament because Peter is constantly pulling stuff out of the Old Testament and using it to communicate the gospel. And if we don't understand it, we're not going to understand what he says. Believe it or not, in this passage, 
Peter is quoting an Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8, and it's a promise, it's a prediction about the coming Messiah. Jesus is the cornerstone. The coming Messiah is the cornerstone. And in Isaiah chapter 8, it says, because of people's sin, because of their rebellion, when they encounter the cornerstone, they're going to disobey him, and then they're going to stumble. But chapter 9 starts with this word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. And it begins to talk about how those people will be brought out of darkness into light, and it's the zeal of the Lord that's going to accomplish this. That yes, there are going to be people who stumble, but God wants them to trust in Christ. So, if it doesn't feel clear yet, let's keep going. We're going to interpret this unclear passage with some clear ones. And here's just a handful. John 3.16 says, God loved the whole what? World. That whoever believes in Jesus will be saved. Matthew 28, Jesus says, your job is to go into all the world and take the gospel. Both of these verses right here say, it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. Psalm 67, 2 says that it's God's will that everyone, every nation from all over the earth that they would have salvation. Isaiah 45 says that it's God's desire for people from all over the earth would repent. And Ezekiel chapter 18, it says that God finds no pleasure in the death of anyone. And so as we work our way through hermeneutics and apply it to this passage, I don't think it leads us to the conclusion that Peter was trying to communicate that God predetermined some people aren't going to believe. But instead, that God predetermined that when people disobey Jesus, they stumble. And that is an expression of God's love for us. Would you write this down? One evidence of God's love for all of us is that none of us can escape consequences. And I know there are times we wish this wasn't true, but this is an expression of his love. When we experience hurts and consequences and difficulty because we're trying to be our own moral authority for life, that is a continual reminder that we need a better authority, and the authority is Jesus. And God, on purpose, he intentionally designed this world to work with a series of cause and effect relationships. And when we violate his authority and we go with our own, we experience stumbling and hardships, and that's designed to motivate us to repent, not an example of God predetermining that we wouldn't. And when we do repent, when we do trust in him as the authority and the foundation of our life, this is what's true of you. And if you would repent, if you would come to Jesus as the savior, authority, and foundation of your life, this is what will be true of you. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Week one, I asked, would you memorize this verse, 1 Peter 2, 9? Because we need to know who we are. Because when we know who we are, it becomes clear of how we should live. You are our chosen people. If you are in Christ, he wanted you long before you wanted him. You are a royal priesthood. When you trust in Christ, you are adopted into the family of the king. We are royals. Do you know what it means to be a priest? A priest's responsibility is to represent God to people. Do you know what that means for us? Is experiencing what we are like should be an indicator of what Jesus is like. Experiencing what we're like should be a snapshot, a glimpse into what Jesus is like. We're a holy nation. 
We become a part of a people that are set apart by God. That's what holy means. We're a part of a new people. We don't live for our agendas anymore. We live for his agenda, and our goal is that he would be praised. And lastly, you're God's special possession. When you read that, this is what I want you to remember. This is what you gotta know. Is when God looks at you, do you know what he says? You know what he thinks? You're my favorite. You're my favorite. You're my favorite. You're my favorite. So what's the point? How do we take all of this? Peter's saying, listen, you gotta remember who you are in Christ. There's sins we're gonna actively, on purpose, work to get rid of. We're built on Christ, and yes, some people, they're gonna stumble over and disobey Jesus, but remember who you are. What's the point of this? I think he would be pleased if we summarized it like this. If people stumble, let it be because they don't believe what Jesus did and not that they can't believe what we do. If people stumble, let it be because they just choose not to believe in Jesus and not because they look at us and they're like, I can't believe those people act that way. Let's choose to be people. Let's just say, we don't wanna be the reason that people choose to reject Jesus. We wanna be the kind of people who God is happy to use to help other people want to know Jesus. At the beginning of this message, I said I'm gonna end with this question. What is it that truly defines you? Some of you guys came here today, some of you guys might be watching online right now because you're stumbling. And your approach to life has been this. You're trying to achieve it, you're trying to earn it, you're trying to secure a life worth living. And right now, you don't like the results that you're getting. And I don't know what's going on but you're stumbling. Would you come to Jesus? Would you humbly come to him and say, Jesus, I want to trust in you. I want you to be the authority and the savior and the foundation for my life. And for those of us who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. What if, what if we really live as though we believe we are defined by him and not what we do. I don't know if any of you have heard about this, but um, there are reports coming out of a university in Kentucky of something pretty special happening. Uh, on February 8th, they had a chapel service, and that chapel service has not ended yet. There's just a bunch of college kids responding to the work of God's Spirit, and it's nothing flashy nothing programmed. It's just a bunch of college kids who don't want to stop singing. They don't want to stop praying. They're publicly confessing their sin. <laughs> people are giving their life to Jesus. Thousands of people have started traveling to the schools just so they could see it and be in the same room with what's happening there. We're beginning to hear word. We're beginning to hear reports of something similar happening in other college campuses in our country. It just seems as though What's happening is there's some college kids that are just not afraid to respond to what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in their life. I want us to be people. I don't want us to try and manufacture anything. I just want us to be people who say we're so secure in who we are in Christ. We're so confident in who we are and all that we've been given. We're not going to be afraid 
We're not gonna be too insecure to respond to how the Holy Spirit is working in us and leading us. And maybe he's responding us to give. Maybe he's responding in our lives and working in our lives and leading us to, to confess sin to others. Maybe he's leading you to join a class and to really invest in your own spiritual growth. Maybe he's leading you. Maybe he's saying it's time for you to, to tell that person in your life, it's a coworker, it's a neighbor, it's somebody who you love, to let them know you have been praying for them. To stop holding back and to stop being afraid to share the good news of Christ with people who you care about. I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit of God is saying you need to get up and walk across the room and to say to someone, I'm so sorry for the malice and the slander that I've had. Would you forgive me? Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you, it's time to forgive. But whatever he's doing, let's be so confident in Christ. Let's remember who we are in him that we would not be afraid to live out what it means to be his chosen people, royal priests, a holy nation, God's special possession so that he will be praised.